Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Dennis Levi. Dr. Levi is a professor at the UC Berkeley School of Optometry. Dr. Levi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. It's my pleasure. So uh, we're going to dive into a number of topics today. Um, and I have to be honest with you, even though I have a, uh, some background in uh, you know, eye disease uh, as a patient and, and a researcher, the stuff that you do is very complex. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, but very complex. So uh, even, even for, uh, for someone who's been um, you know, tangentially, I guess, in the space. So, uh, but I'm sure you can break it down for me and, and for the audience. So maybe we can start there. And if you just stop, start with uh, a little overview of um, you know, the kind of research that you do at your, your Berkeley lab. Sure. So uh, research uh, in our lab um, is really focused on how we perceive uh, forms, visual forms and patterns, and how form perception and binocular vision are degraded by abnormal visual experience early in life. And particularly uh, in people who have amblyopia. Amblyopia is a neurodevelopmental loss of vision in one eye. Less commonly in, uh, in both eyes, and that mostly is in underdeveloped countries where there's poor access to healthcare. The most common form of vision loss in children, um, besides refractive error, that is farsightedness or nearsightedness, in, ter- in fact, is amblyopia. So it's a problem that affects uh, maybe two to 3% of the population. Um, and uh, amblyopia comes about when the two eyes don't get the same input early in life, either because one eye has a blurred image um, while the other one is clear, that's called anisometropia. The, the patient has unequal refractive error in the two eyes, needs different prescriptions for the two eyes, or the two eyes are not aimed at the same object because one is turned, uh, eye turn or strabismus. Um, are the, those are the two most common causes of amblyopia. And it always develops early in life, typically in the first few years um, by age four to six. And the treatment generally and most uh, currently is limited to children. Um, So we're interested in what aspects of amblyopic vision are compromised and what aspects are spared, uh, where's the damage and what are the underlying um, neural abnormalities, how it relates to normal vision in particular form and depth perception. And, it can teach us a lot about brain plasticity because amblyopia can be treated, particularly in young children, but um, we're trying to push the boundaries and, and uh, improve vision in adults with amblyopia and older children too. And the overarching goal in our lab is to try to develop and test new methods to diagnose and treat uh, these abnormalities, both in children and adults. And thanks for, for that, uh, that overview of the amblyopia as well. But it, it, it just brings up a whole slew of questions that I have. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to fire them one by one here. So um, okay. ta- you mentioned uh, in brain plasticity, um, you know, there's a general belief, or at least there was once upon a time, I'm sure 
maybe you can comment on that, but um, that, you know, the brain can be more plastic or more uh, able to um, change earlier on versus as we we're older. And maybe that's a dogma that's been challenged. Um, mm -hmm. But are there uh, the, when you talk about amblyopia, are there cortical level uh, changes that are happening also whenever someone develops amblyopia and whenever they uh, undergo treatment or is that, uh, is that even known? Absolutely. So we believe that amblyopia is primarily a cortical problem. The retina, there might be some subtle changes in the retina, but the, the main changes that occur in, in the amblyopic visual system, uh, and we know a lot of this uh, from physiology studies in animal models, and also now from human brain imaging, uh, the, the main changes occur first in the primary visual cortex where information from the two eyes gets comes together. And we also think that there are changes with treatment, that is, those changes occur in the brain. So uh, we consider amblyopia to be primarily a cortical problem, a cortical issue. It, it's a brain problem. Okay, no, that's, that's uh, just, I guess it's interesting because we always, we, we often think of it as a, oh, this is an eye problem, but this, it is an eye problem with uh, origins in the brain, I guess that, um, yeah. now how do you study that? Like how, how, what are some of the research methodologies, mm. methodologies that people <laughs> might use to, uh, I need more coffee, to, um, uh, to, to study yeah, to study both at the at the level of you know, the eye, but also at the level of the brain to see, um, you know, changes that might be be taking place. Yeah. So, in our lab, because we deal with humans, um, we use a broad range of methods, uh, including what's called psychophysics, uh, eye tracking. We do modeling, uh, computational modeling, and neuroimaging to study the neural mechanisms. Uh, and to learn how they're degraded. Um, so if you like, I could give a little more detail about what each of those methods entails. That'd be great, because I mean, I know a little bit about uh, about all of those things, but not a lot about any of them. So yeah, if you don't mind diving into that, then um, that'd be great. Sure. So basically, psychophysics, um, anybody who's ever been to an eye doctor has been a subject for psychophysics experiment. When your visual acuity is being measured, uh, the doctor is measuring the limit of your spatial vision. What's the smallest detail that you can, uh, you can read? Um, and in fact, George Wald, who got the 1967 Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology, did some of the earliest careful psychophysics in patients with amblyopia and showed that amblyopia is primarily a problem of form perception and not of light perception, suggesting that the retinal receptors, the rods and the cones were intact and that the damage was in the visual cortex. Um, so we, we use psychophysics. It's a very old um, methodology actually invented by in the 1800s by Gustav Fechner who was interested in formally describing the relationship between sensation, what we see, what's in our mind, and the energy, the, what's in the world that gives rise to that sensation. And he called this 
psychophysics from psycho for your your mind and physics for matter. Um, and he made some of the first objective measurements of psychological events through new ways to measure what we see and what we hear and what we feel. And we use psychophysics to find out what patients with amblyopia can see and what they have difficulty seeing. So for example, a patient with amblyopia has no trouble seeing big rapidly moving objects, a truck coming along in their peripheral vision, no problem. They are very much less sensitive to small, low contrast objects with their amblyopic eye. Um, they're also very susceptible to what we call crowding, um, which is the notion that they can see letters when they're presented in isolation, a single letter at a time. But if you present them with a line of letters, they get lost. They, they really have trouble. So those surrounding contours make it much more difficult to see. And when both eyes are viewing, uh, we've learned from psychophysics that the strong eye suppresses or inhibits the, the weak one. So, and, and this is again, something that occurs in the brain where, um, where information from the two eyes first comes together. Um, we use computer modeling um, to, to not only describe how things work, but also to try to better understand the circuits and um, makes predictions about how the visual system will respond to specific stimulus conditions. Um, we use uh, various neuroimaging methods like EEG, which is the electrical activity from your brain, which measures the activity of dozens uh, of, of, well, you can put dozens of electrodes on the scalp and um, record from whole populations of neurons to measure their activity. Um, you don't really know exactly where in the brain that information is coming from, but there's very high temporal resolution. So you can tell um, uh, quite a lot. In fact, part of my PhD work involved <laughs> many, many years ago involved EEG in patients with amblyopia. And we showed that uh, the neural responses from the brain were smaller and were also delayed when viewing with the amblyopic eye. Um, another neuroimaging procedure that's uh, been very useful in, in uh, the last 20 years or so is functional MRI, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, where you can see the activity of the living brain. Um, the critical factor here is that active brain tissue uh, is hungry brain tissue. It needs oxygen. Uh, and so oxygen and other, other uh, metabolites are supplied uh, by the blood. And um, you can pick up that blood flow, the changes in blood flow with an MRI device. And that gives rise to this technique called functional MRI, which allows you to see which areas light up when uh, you're looking at a particular kind of visual stimulus or doing a particular task. And so we've learned a lot um, from functional imaging about uh, the brain's uh, role in, in amblyopia. Um, a related technique is MRS or magnetic 
resonance spectro spectroscopy, which can tell us about uh, the inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain called GABA, um, and uh, which arises when there are inhibitory interactions. And so you can measure the amount of this neurotransmitter um, using um, MRAs. So those are some of the techniques. And, and then eye tracking. Uh, you can learn a lot about somebody's vision by just tracking their eye movements with a very with a sensitive eye tracker. Um, so one of my graduate students, Avi Eisenman, um, ha has been looking at using eye tracking to see improvements in vision when patients are being treated um, and finding that you can actually, uh, that the changes in their eye movements actually mirror the improvements in their vision as they go through treatment. So those are some of the techniques that we use. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for giving that, that overview. The first question that comes up here as a, as a follow-up is um, you mentioned that amblyopia is something that is generally, at least um, in the Western world, treated um, young when kids are you know, four, six years old, whatever that may yeah. be, but that in some areas with less access to um, diagnostics and, and uh, follow-up and, and eye care in general, that these people will go blind from, from amblyopia. That is something that could otherwise be relatively treatable in most cases. Um, so as these people who do, you know, I say go blind, they, they'll lose vision in that eye because the brain will essentially block it out for the various reasons that you, you mentioned. Um, can that with adults, that function be recovered? And is it, and if so, um, you know, how do you go about doing that? Is it the same, uh, methods used for helping kids or are there more, um, innovative or different methods um, that you're using that you, the collective you uh, in, in the space are using to, um, to address this? Yeah. So a great question. Um, so firstly, you nicely corrected yourself because nobody with amblyopia is blind. The, the you know, peripheral vision is pretty good in that eye, in the amblyopic eye. Um, large objects that are moving quickly can be readily seen. Um, but uh, their ability to, to read, see fine detail, read easily with the amblyopic eye, um, see that small objects that ha have low contrast are, are severely compromised. Um, we believe that, so the standard treatment, um, let me just say that for the last 250 plus years uh, has been to patch the strong, eye to, in quotes, uh, force the weak eye to work. Uh, and in, in young children, so giving them the proper optical correction um, and, and then patching in young children is, is pretty successful if they'll wear the patch, um, which is a whole nother story in itself, because as you can imagine, most young children don't really want to be going around with an eye patch for months at a time. And that kind of treatment is, is generally not 
provided to uh, older patients. Um, and partly because of this idea that plasticity wanes um, in beyond some critical age of maybe six or seven or eight, depending on who, who you believe or who you read. Um, but it turns out that you can treat amblyopia in older patients. Um, and it just takes different methods, I believe. And, and so one of the problems with amblyopia, of course, is the fact that you've got the strong eye that dominates the, the weak eye and suppresses it. Um, so another problem is that because the information from the amblyopic eye is kind of noisy and unreliable, the brain will not pay attention to it often. So if you can do something to get that patient using, using information from the amblyopic eye, um, that can be an effective way of treating amblyopia or improving their vision. So for instance, we know from a, a lot of work in, in people with normal vision that uh, if they just do repeated practice of a difficult perceptual task, some near threshold um, visual task, for instance, they, they get better. That's called perceptual learning. And um, that improvement is often very long lasting. It, we believe that it's, it, it's a neural, it results in neural changes in the brain. Um, and it turns out that doing something like that in patients with amblyopia, in adults with amblyopia, results in improved vision too. So there have been a number of studies, um, and in fact, involving hundreds of patients in labs around the world that have shown that adults can improve their vision. Adults with amblyopia can improve their vision by perceptual learning. Now, they might not get to normal, but they can improve. Uh, another approach that is more recent, um, and that's really um, been pushed by uh, Robert Hess at McGill and his colleagues, um, is the idea that you need to actually try to counteract the suppression. So treatment that involves both eyes, where you try to give the amblyopic eye a leg up so that it will not be suppressed, so that it can overcome the suppression from the preferred eye. And many of those studies in labs have shown improvements uh, in, in vision. So there, you know, there are also a number of, of case reports of a patient with amblyopia in one eye who loses their strong eye, the other eye, um, through a disease or uh, injury or accident and spontaneously recovers vision. Um, so we know that it's possible to improve vision. Again, maybe not to normal, may, maybe not as easily in older patients as in young children, um, but certainly I believe that you can improve vision in older patients and, in, in, and we've had patients in their 60s and 70s who uh, have shown improvements. No, that's that's phenomenal. Uh, now you you mentioned Robert Hess's uh, research. Is this? Uh, so I actually went to McGill. Is this 
the same research that I'm just trying to remember a number of years ago where they were using like a VR headset or something and they were playing Tetris and then one eye was the piece was falling, but you couldn't see the bottom of the screen. The other eye was the bottom of the screen and it was forcing them to work together or something like that. Is that the same research? Same research. Yeah. And of course, yeah. okay. you know, Robert's done a whole bunch of more studies and uh, different kinds of the, the idea of using video games, by the way, is one that we've uh, pushed too. And, and it turns out even playing video games just with the amblyopic eye while you patch the other eye for uh, uh, an hour or so a day um, over a course of about 40 hours gives uh, a, a line or two improvement in visual acuity in adults with amblyopia. Um, and does that last? Like that, that changes yeah, um, that. Oh, really? this, the studies that have looked at follow up, and not all studies look at follow up, and the follow up is typically being done for a year or, you know, as much as a year or two, um, it, it seems to stick, um, at least as well as the effects of patching, which doesn't always stick either. So, so you, you mentioned about. Um, video games and I know your lab has uh, ventured into this space as well and you have some pretty uh, significant research that's been published in that space so I was hoping maybe you can just talk a little bit about what your group has done with respect to uh, amblyopia uh, related research um, in a you know video game type of environment. Absolutely happy to do that so uh, we we like video games um, and in fact the first study that used video games to try to treat amblyopia was done uh, in my lab in con uh, collaboration with uh, Roger Lee, who has been working with me for a long time. And we had adults uh, play a shoot 'em up action video game uh, about an hour a day uh, for, for over the course of 40 hours. Um, and this is with their amblyopic eye and the other eye being patched, and we found that they improved by one to two lines uh, just by playing video games with their amblyopic eye. And it turns out in controlled studies that it doesn't have to be a shoot 'em up game, which is good because <laughs> for little kids, you certainly don't want them to be shooting up their uh, <laughs> anything, <laughs> right? Anything, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. We're even even in America. Um, <laughs> uh, but one of the big issues with amblyopia is not only the poor um, visual acuity, but their binocular vision, the, the ability to use the two eyes together and their stereo vision, the ability to see things in depth. And so we've been really trying to use video games to improve both visual acuity, but also stereo vision. Um, and we were sort of inspired in this venture by a couple of um, reports. One was by uh, Sue Barry. Um, you might have heard of her. Uh, Oliver Sachs wrote a piece about her called her Stereo Sue. Um, Sue Barry was a, a neuroscientist, actually. She's a, uh, and in her 60s, she had, and she'd been a, strabismic, she'd had a turned eye um, pretty much most of her life. 
she had some very poor stereo um, and she went through a vision training uh, with an optometrist um, and she regained stereo and she wrote this um, book describing uh, what happened and, and how she felt about it. And she describes sitting in her car after a session and all of a sudden seeing the steering wheel popping out towards her in depth, something that she hadn't ever perceived before. And then she looked up and she could see that the trees had volume, that the leaves were closer, the branches were closer than the trunk. And um, it had this very, very uh, beautiful description of 3D vision. And, and you know, she said that, you know, if you've never had 3D vision before, you can't imagine what you're missing. And then once you get it, you know, you want to, you want to keep it. So that was one observation that it's possible for an adult to get stereo and that they see something that actually improves their life. And another piece that was written by uh, the late Bruce Bridgman, who is a, uh, a psychology professor at UC Santa Cruz, who also had had uh, strabismus, you know, turned eye um, most of his life and had poor stereo um, and took his grandson, he, Bruce too was in his sixties, took his grandson to see the movie Hugo. And he thought, you know, why would I want to waste 14 bucks on the, on the headset to see uh, a 3D movie, but I would look like kind of a dork if I didn't, because everybody else in the movie theater is going to be wearing the headset. So he put on the headset and to his glee and surprise, he was able to see things in 3D in depth. And his first thought was, well, you know, the, the disparities in the, in the movie, the, the amount of depth that's actually built into the 3D movie was huge, much bigger than occurs in, in uh, natural scenes. It's so exaggerated that maybe that's why he was seeing it. Um, but then he left the movie theater and he saw things in 3D in real life outside the movie theater. Um, and he had this hypothesis that it was, you know, paying attention to these large disparities, these large depth, this large depth information, 3D depth information that was useful. And so we've done a number of studies. Um, and learned, I think, some of the important principles of treating um, vision to, to, to improve stereo vision. And one of the important principles is to try to get the input to the brain equal from the two eyes. That is, you know, the amblyopic eyes sending these weak and, and uh, noisy signals. But if you give it a strong, stronger signal than the good eye, you can sort of equalize them perceptually so that the information going to the brain is perceptually equal. Getting the images aligned in the two eyes so that the, the same parts of the retina are looking at the same parts of the visual scene, which is really important in somebody who's got an eye turn. Um, providing these large, this large depth information inspired by Bruce Bridgman. And another thing that 
I think was done in the movie Hugo and perhaps in a lot of 3D movies is that, you know, there's a lot of two-dimensional information in a visual scene that gives the perception of depth of distance. Things like uh, occlusion, if, if, if uh, something is in, in, in front of, um, of, of something else, it, it might block out your view of that other thing or part of the other thing. So you can infer depth. There's perspective cues, um, you know, rail lines look like they kind of converge in the distance. And artists know how to use those, that information so that the scene looks three-dimensional even though it's on a flat screen. And so the other thing that is done in, in 3D movies and that Hugo did very well is to match up the 2D information with the 3D information. And so we had this idea that maybe you could use all of these things and use the 2D information as kind of training wheels, as a scaffold for um, depth perception. And all of these can be easily realized in virtual reality. So that's the thing that VR is very good for because the two eyes have separate screens. You can provide high contrast to the, to the weak, weak eye and low contrast to the strong eye to kind of equalize the input to the brain. You can shift images so that they're properly aligned. You can make it the depth information, the 3D depth information big, and you can add 2D information and remove it. Um, so uh, one of my graduate students, uh, and Angie Godinez, who's now a postdoc in Berlin, just published a paper recently in Scientific Reports, um, providing a proof of concept of, of this idea. What, what we did um, was to develop virtual reality games that uh, encompass all of these principles um, where you have both 3D and 2D cues, and then you take out the 2D cues so that they are no longer, you know, they, you kind of take away the training wheels. And all of our uh, observers, all of our subjects um, who are both in normal subjects, but also patients who had, uh, who had poor, poor or no stereo improved in their stereo, including some who had no stereo that we could measure before they did the training and had measurable stereo after. Um, and another uh, virtual reality study that we did in collaboration with Daphne Bavillier showed that these improvements occur because initially the brain essentially ignores the 3D information because they're noisy and unreliable. And what the brain <laughs> learns is to attend to and give more weight to the 3D cue as training progresses. And so they start to use the 3D information. Um, and, and again, virtual reality turns out to be a really good way of, of doing this. Well, you know, the other thing about virtual reality is you're talking about uh, with kids and eye patches and compliance. I feel like if you give them the choice of an eye patch or virtual reality <laughs> to treat your condition, you're going to get it, you know, 100% compliance with virtual reality when you deal with, you know, four and six year olds, right? So 
Exactly. Um, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, they, you could have you could have asked kids, you know, 250 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, do you want an eye patch or you want a video game? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. But um, so just maybe one or uh, two more questions, if you don't mind. Um, but you alluded to perceptual learning. Yeah. Um, can perceptual learning have a place outside of amblyopia? Uh, and I, the, I just automatically think about like sports performance and stuff like this. Is that something that actually happens or am I just imagining? Oh, no, that no, no. You're, yeah. you're not imagining it. It's yeah. Perceptual learning. Um, and it, you know, people use different names too. So it's not always called perceptual learning, but perceptual learning is being used in, in a wide range of, uh, different conditions, um, and, and, and in training things like sports. Um, so yeah, you can definitely. Okay. So now that leads me to my last question. Um, you hold a Guinness world record. Um, maybe you can talk a little about that. And then if, if that has anything to do with perceptual learning or, or, uh, or maybe what the, um, what the, uh, origin or the, the, uh, link is, um, to, yeah. to this Guinness record. So uh, it's, a, it's a cute, I think a cute story. Um, my uh, long-term collaborator and friend, Stanley Klein, um, this, is, this was done back um, when I was at the University of Houston and Stan was uh, also a faculty member there and we collaborated. And we, you know, we're again interested in studying form and spatial vision and looking at the limits using psychophysics. And it turns out that there's a range of tasks that we are super good at, and they are all involve sensing the relative, relative location of, of objects. So um, imagine two lines uh, that are, let's say, horizontal and pointing at each other, just touching. And if you shift one of the lines up a little bit, you can see that it's shifted upward, or if you shift it down, you can see that it's shifted downward. And it turns out that we can see those relative position changes with an accuracy that is um, way smaller than the smallest cones in the back of the eye, in the, in the retina, um, just a few arc seconds. Um, so the, these tiny shifts, and we wanted to see is there a way that you can actually, and, and there are a number of theories about how this is done. Um, obviously, you know, it, it, it involves uh, a level of perception that goes beyond the retina. Um, and so there are a number of theories about where in the brain it's done and how, much, how it's done. And we wanted to push the limit and find out, well, what is the best hyperacuity you can do? And so we, actually found out that it's possible under very special circumstances in a very well-practiced, and this is where perceptual learning might've come in, observer, that was me, that there's a, that you could actually do a hyperacuity task with an accuracy of less than one arc second. That's tiny. It's like, you know, seeing uh, the wing of a fly moving um, from a large distance away. Um, and we had a paper that was just accepted. And 
in for publication when uh, Stan's daughter came to visit him. She'd been living in Los Angeles with her mom and she came to Houston and she said, dad, you know, what are you doing? And Stan got very excited and he said, you know, we've been doing this cool experiment and we found this incredible um, hyperacuity and his daughter being an inquisitive 12 year old, I think at the time, went to the library and she came back and she said, you know, dad, the, um, the Guinness Book of Records has the world's best vision as being this East German woman who purportedly can recognize faces from two kilometers. And that seems pretty unscientific. So she sent a copy of this just accepted or just published paper to the Guinness Book of Records and said, you know, your entry seems quite unscientific and, you know, here's evidence that um, Dennis Levi was able to do this um, hyperacuity task uh, repeatedly with an accuracy of less than one arc second. And so Guinness put it in the book of records and took out the German lady. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so, you know, at some point, so, you know, it was pretty yeah, exciting <laughs> you know maybe maybe we shouldn't publish this episode because the audience there's gonna be somebody in the audience who listens to this and saying oh, i can do that i can do better <laughs> i can i can dethrone this guy you know and uh no that's no that's, that's cool that's, a, that's an interesting story so um but no um listen this is this has been fun i've, I've really in, enjoyed this um delved into areas of vision that are uh certainly not my field of expertise by any stretch. Um, so I hope my questions were not uh, too, too basic or too off, but um, I do appreciate you um, giving in a nice overview of, of the field of the research that uh, your group has done and others. Um, I think it's something that, uh, that our audience is certainly going to enjoy. So I want to thank you for, for joining me today. Well, thank you, Sean. I, I had fun too. And yeah, your questions were great. So thank you. Take care. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>